Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, if you got a Bible, go to John chapter 17. We're looking at Jesus' longest prayer in the whole Bible. In the first week, Jesus prayed for himself. So if you've got needs, feel free to pray for yourself. In the second week, Jesus prayed for Christians. Pray for Christians. This week, Jesus is gonna pray for non-Christians. And amazingly enough, you're gonna see that he prayed for you. And Jesus here has been doing his ministry, living his life openly and publicly for about three years. And this is the final series of scenes for the life of of Jesus. He is just hours before going to the cross to die in our place for our sins. And he stops to pray, just shows that you got to pray first. And the bigger the opportunity or the obstacle, the longer you need to pray. And he prays his longest prayer as he heads into his darkest day. And what he's going to say in 26 verses of John chapter 17 is this little word glory or glorify about eight times. And the point is this, that our lives are short and brief. God gives us only so many dollars and days, and we either waste or invest the life that God has given us. Wasting the life God has given us often happens because we don't know what our purpose is. Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? When Jesus speaks of glory, glorifying, he is telling us that his life is lived with this mission, this purpose, this compass point north of living to the glory of God. And then he's gonna pray for us today that we would choose to invest our life, not waste our life, by living our life to glorify God. Our dollars for God, our days for God, our relationships for God, our career for God, our our family for God. Everything that we have is invested in the kingdom of God for the glory of God and the good of others. And what Jesus is getting ready to do here is make an investment, an eternal investment in you and me. He's going to go to the cross to take away sin, to give forgiveness, relationship, and eternal life. And as Jesus prays out loud, he prays so that we can overhear. And and you know something about a person's heart when you hear them pray. And not only is prayer sort of disclosing, it's also relationship building. And so in praying, Jesus is disclosing his heart and he's also building his relationship with us. And as Jesus is praying, he is giving us his priorities, which I want for us as a church family to make sure are our priorities. So we're gonna jump right in. I'm super excited. It's a great day. It's the best day of the week. And we get to read words from Jesus, amen? That's awesome. That's amazing. Well, let's start right here. And the first thing that Jesus prays for is unity because unity is godly. Division is demonic. I'll read it to you. John 17, 23, 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Let me just pause right there. Do you believe in Jesus? Do we have any Christians here today? What's amazing is, hear me in this, 2,000 years ago, Jesus is getting ready to die so that people could be forgiven. And he's looking down the corridor of history and he's praying for you. You're on Jesus' heart. You're in Jesus' mind as Jesus prepares to go to the cross. That's amazing. Jesus, when he goes to die, he's looking 2,000 years down the road at you and me. And he is going to pray for us And then he is going to die for us and he is going to raise for us. 
and he's gonna go before us and prepare a place for us because he wants a relationship with us. That's amazing. Jesus prayed for you and he, he lives to intercede, the Bible said. He's praying for you right now. That they may all be one. This is language of unity. We're gonna hit this as our big theme to kick off this sermon. Just as you, Father, and I in me, and I in you. So the precedent and pattern for unity is God. We'll talk about that. They also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. God wants his people to be one. So as we go out to invite other people to meet Jesus, they can join the family. It's really hard to go out and say, hey, we hate each other. We, we yell at each other. We're mean to each other. Do you wanna join? It's, it's a hard sales pitch, right? If you go to the doctor and the doctor's like, I'm really good at making people sick. You're like, I'm getting a new doctor. If you're looking at a family that is always just sort of hammering on one another and beating one another up instead of building one another up, it's really hard to encourage people to join the family. So the love among God's people then encourages others to join God's family. Uh, he goes on to talk about the glory that you have given me, I have given them. So he's living for the glory of the Father. He wants you and I to live for the glory of the Father. Uh, that they may be one, there's that word again, one, even as we are one. You see the theme? One, 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 one. How many of you have kids? And the first thing you realize with a kid, you gotta tell them more than once, amen? Because the kids forget. So Jesus is like, I, we're one. I pray that they would be one. I'm praying again that they would be one. Uh, just to make sure that they hear this, I'm praying that they would be one. That's the, that's the Lord's way of saying, this is important. He's highlighting it. That they may become perfectly one. That means there's always something to work on so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Jesus here is praying for unity. Uh, let me talk at length about unity because unity is godly, division is demonic. Unity starts with God. And Jesus says here, I pray that they would be one, Father, as you and I are one. This leads us to the doctrine of the Trinity. If you're new, we love you, glad to have you. Best day of the week. The Trinity is what we've named our church after, the Trinity Church. This is a view of God that only the Bible and Christians hold. Some religions teach that there is one God. Some religions teach that there are many gods. Christianity alone and exclusively believes in one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus here says that he and the Father are one, he's talking about the relational nature of God. The Trinitarian God of the Bible is by essence and nature relational. The Father, Son, and Spirit, they do everything together. They love one another, they serve one another. They are relational and conversational. When Jesus here is praying to the Father, this is what he always does. He talks to the Father. They talk about everything and they have for all eternity. God is by nature unified, relational, and one. And that is the precedent and pattern. And so for you and I as believers, as we are able to love one another and live together in unity, we are fulfilling the prayer of Jesus and we are showing the character and nature of God. And this starts, I might just add, with our spouse, okay? My wife, Grace, is not here. She's in New York with our daughter, Alexi. They're off for a choir trip. Um, I didn't intend to tell, I'll tell you how it's going. Here's what I've discovered. I'm a decent father and a terrible mother. That's what I have realized. The first day, Grace gets up and feeds the kids and um, I don't. 
And so uh, the kids went to school and I got up and the only thing out was potato chips. I think the kids had, I think the boys and I, the boys had potato chips for breakfast. I went to the Barrett Jackson auto auction day one. Uh, my son called, hey, is anybody picking me up from school? Oh yeah, I lost a kid. Took 12 hours, I lost a kid. I lost a kid. I said, well, get the Uber app, you know? And no, I, we, we went and got him. So, so then we went out to eat and I came home and the dog was in the house and got into the garbage and strewed it all over. And I was angry at the dog. Then I realized we didn't feed the dog. So the dog kind of was fending for itself. By day two, the house looked like an episode of Hoarders. It looked like a homeless camp. And, um, and so I bought a vacuum. Things got so bad, I bought one of those Dyson vacuums and it seemed crowded. So don't tell Grace, but I literally gave away some of the furniture. A guy was over visiting, gave away two chairs and two tables and two lamps. So now there's more walkway and it seems less crowded. And then, <laughs> yeah. So today is day three. Um, we're gonna go home and watch football and somebody's gonna deliver food to my house. Ashley came over to feed us, my oldest daughter, but she's not gonna be there tonight. So we're, we're in the horns of a crisis, pray for us. And, uh, and Grace gets home tomorrow. So pray that we have the same number of children. And uh, so nonetheless, uh, all that to say, um, I have discovered that we are better together, amen? And the kids would all second that motion, right? Because they're living in a homeless camp and starving and, uh, and being left places and not driven around. And so what, what I have realized in 26 years with my girl is we're better together and we can get a lot more done together than we can by ourselves, especially by me. She'd probably be fine without me. I always say we're a drama queen. She's a queen, I'm the drama. That's how we roll. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, the, the, the point is that together as one, we're a lot better and we get a lot more done. And I'm a decent dad. She's an awesome mom. I have discovered that I am an awful mom. That's what I've discovered. And so this issue of oneness, it starts with the husband and the wife. Um, and it's how the family is built. And then when there is oneness, that's how the church family is built. So God says that there is to be a husband and a wife and they are to be what? One, same language. Well, you say, but there's two persons there. There's a man and a woman. Um, yes, and they're one, okay? They're one. So as Grace and I are one, so God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are perfectly one. And God wants his people in the family of God, starting with our marriages and families to be one and to be always working, to quote Jesus here, to become perfectly one, okay? So, so unity starts with God. And the way that it is protected and preserved is with a principle I'll call singular headship, plural leadership. This is a leadership lesson. So, in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they are plural leadership. They make decisions together. They do everything together. But the head is whom? God the Father. So John 17, one, the beginning of Jesus' high priestly prayer, it says that he looked up to heaven and said, Father. Now in looking up, what Jesus is revealing is that he's under authority, right? He's under authority. He's under the authority of God the Father. And in praying to the Father, he is praying to the authority that is over him. So Jesus, though he is a leader, to be sure, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they are plural leadership, singular headship. And in the home, it is the same way. The government of home is to be patterned after the government of God. And in the government of home, the husband and wife, the mother and father, they are plural leaders. That's why the Bible says that children should honor who? 
their father and their mother, plural leadership, but who's the head? The husband. Singular headship, plural leadership. And so it means for us that when this principle of singular headship and plural leadership is optimized, it provides an opportunity for unity. Now, why do I tell you this? Because there was a governance war, there was a coup attempt in heaven. I'm working on a book with Grace. It's called Win Your War. It's a spiritual warfare book. It's due in a month. Appreciate your prayers. We'll give you a copy. And we do a sermon series in the fall and it releases. But I, I, I was thinking about this as I was preparing the book. In heaven, there was total unity. The father was the head, the father, son, and spirit were the plural leaders. There were angelic beings. They were all in alignment. They were in agreement. They were loving, they were relational. And then there was a violation of the governmental order. One of the angels, Satan, decided that he would not be under authority, that he would be in authority, that he would not take orders, that he would give orders, that he would not live for God's glory, that he wanted all the glory. There was a coup attempt, there was a rebellion in heaven. This is the storyline of the Bible. And Satan recruited with him a third of the heavenly hosts, the angelic beings, and they declared war on God, trying to topple God the Father as the head and leader of all creation. The Bible says that there was this great war in heaven and that God and the angels defeated Satan and the demons and that they were cast down to the earth. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Here he comes. Division comes down with the demonic. If Satan hadn't rebelled, there wouldn't be rebellion. Had Satan not brought rebellion down with him, there would not be rebellion on the earth today. So when we, when we are not practicing godly unity, we are doing something that is demonic. Do you get that? Does this make sense? See, because we're born into a world with folly, pride, rebellion, and division. We think it's normal. No, it's not. In heaven right now, there is no division. There is no disunity. There is no disagreement. Right now in heaven, there is leadership and there is unity. And as we operate by God's grace to be a unified people, we are demonstrating the character and culture of the kingdom of God. And we are doing spiritual battle against demonic forces that want us to be divided. And why do I tell you this? Because at this point, Jesus' prayer is in an upper room to with 11 guys overhearing. There was 12, what happened to one? Judas, he rebelled, he didn't practice unity. He, according to John 13, 27, we looked at it a while ago, had already opened his heart to Satan. Satan who started the rebellion in heaven and recruited the angels to join him and become demons comes down to the earth and he recruits Judas to join him with the demonic forces. At this point, as Jesus is praying for unity, he's praying to uh, the Father in the presence of 11, not 12, because that unity has already been broken and it's satanic and demonic. Some of you just think that rebellion is a good thing. It's demonic. We even have a culture where rebellion against authority, children against parents, it's a good thing. It's demonic. Because unity is godly and division is demonic.
So let me tell you what unity is not, then I'll tell you what unity is. Unity is not uniformity. Not everybody's the same. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they are distinct persons, but they are one. They have unity, but not uniformity. Um, let me just tell you this. Christianity is a home, not a prison. In a prison, you get uniformity. Literally, they give you a uniform. Everybody wears the same thing. Everybody sleeps on the same cot. Everybody has the same square footage. Everybody keeps the same schedule. Everybody eats the same diet. Christianity is a home, it's not a prison. We have unity, not uniformity. So within Christianity, there's gonna be different cultures and languages and music styles, awesome, great. The only place that everybody's the same is a cult. Let me just tell you that. If you walk in and everybody's wearing the exact same thing and they're all doing the exact same thing and they're all saying the exact same thing, run, run, run right? Because the problem with a cult is, I always say this, you don't know you're in a cult till the last day. That's always the problem with a cult. You're like, I love Kool-Aid, white shoes are awesome, ruh you know. So we don't practice uniformity. People are going to dress different, prefer different Bible translations. They're going to have some disagreements on secondary theological issues. They're going to have different ways of organizing their life. As long as it's not ungodly, praise be to God. Unity is not uniformity. Okay, number two, unity is relational, not organizational. Oftentimes pastors will hear this and like, we need to get a form and we need to have everybody sign it. We all need to be part of the same thing. That's organizational. Unity is relational. It's these Christians loving those Christians and these pastors and churches working with those pastors and churches. It's relational, it's not organizational. There are people that I love with all my heart. They're ministry leaders, pastors, some in the valley, some around the world. If we sat down and said, okay, let's write up what we believe and sign it. We disagree on some secondary things. What holds us together is not the paperwork, but the brotherhood. It's not just the organizational, it's the relational. That's what it is. I've got five kids, I love them with all my heart, and I never made them fill out a form. Just so you know, all right? Okay, you wanna be one of the Driscoll kids? Here's the you know, timeshare condo pitch. Here's all the things you're gonna do or not. No, what I do is I love you, you love me. It's relational, not organizational. Unity is relational, not organizational, and unity is not around methods. This is significant, I need you to know this because I see this as a point of division that the demons use oftentimes to divide God's people unnecessarily. Been a senior pastor for more than 20 years. Let me just share from observation. The Bible, um, and by the way, if you're new, this is the Bible, and the Bible has principles that are timeless and unchanging. We have methods that are timely and changing. Uh, the, the, the principles never change, but the methods do. And what happens is people get a little confused and they think that their method is God's principle. So if you don't do it their way, you're not doing it God's way. There was a parenting book some years ago that said that, right? God's way. Uh, uh, principally, I agree with that. Methodologically, I do not. Let me give you an example, okay? Um, how many of you are parents? You got kids, right? We love your kids. Your kids are cute. Make more. We'd love to meet them too, okay? Um, the Bible says principle, I mean, not now, later, but uh, the Bible says, 
It's just gonna happen. So the Bible says, train a child. That's the principle. What's the method? Okay, raise your hand if you homeschool your kid. Okay, hands down. How many of you uh, send your kid to Christian school? Raise your hand. Okay, okay. How many of you put your, send your kid to public school? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you send your kid to charter school? Okay. Um, private school? Non-Christian? Which one's right? Right row. Okay, the point is principle method. The parents get to decide what's best for each kid each year, right? Is your kid growing in godliness? That's the issue. Some of you, your kid needs a certain environment. Others, they need a different environment because they're different kids. And your family dynamics are different. Diversity, unity, not uniformity. Principles, methods. Principles, methods. Give you another example. In the New Testament, it says to greet one another with a holy kiss. Are we gonna do, do you wanna do that now? Single guys are like, I do. That's not a holy kiss, you're naughty. Okay, that's just a kiss. We're not gonna do that by the way, right? <laughs> but when the Bible says to greet one another with a holy kiss, that's a method, what's behind the method? A principle of what? Warmly greet one another. In some cultures, do you still kiss one another? They do. Some European cultures kiss on the cheek. Some Italian, Spanish, Latin cultures, they're like, wow, okay, I guess, hi, whoo. Hey, 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 hey. That's your space, my space. Hey, 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 All right? The greeting can be different. Are there some cultures that greet others differently than we do? I didn't know this till I traveled internationally as a young pastor, I go overseas and I'm, I'm you know, dumb white guy. So I'm trying to be nice and I'm like, hi. And they're like, put that away. I was like, okay. They're like, that's the bathroom hand. Well, how did you know that? That's private. You know, how do you know that? I mean, <laughs> but in, uh, what, hey, hey, he's just crazy. I, I know, I know that's why we come. It's exciting. Okay, so there you go. Okay, so, but in that culture, this hand is offensive. In our culture, it's not offensive. Principle method, do you get it? So we have diversity of method and we have unity around principle. I shouldn't have said that, we might edit it out. Okay, next one, uh, third one. Okay, so what unity is not, what unity is? Okay, unity is God at the center, God first. Okay, that's what it is. When Jesus prays here, Father, I have had glory with you from eternity past. What he's saying is that the relationship with the Father is primary and prominent. And then Jesus is praying saying, I pray that they would be one as we are one. Jesus is coming to introduce us to the Father. The way you get unity is to have God as the center. Again, I'll tell you about Grace and I. Um, we've been married 26 years. We've always had, I think, pretty good marriage. We love each other. More recent years, the best years of our whole marriage. I, I love her and I miss her. She's been gone for four days and I'm a hot mess minus the hot. I can't wait to get my wife home, right? I miss her. And here's the secret to our relationship. If God is at the center and I'm getting closer to God and God is at the center for her and she's getting closer to God, what are we getting? Closer. Closer. 
If God is the center, then everyone who is getting closer to God is as a byproduct getting closer to each other. That's why the key to our relationships, our families, our church family, God at the center. And if we all pursue God, as a byproduct, we'll all get closer. This is why the world puts unity as the center and it always blows up because only God is big enough to unify all of these kinds of people in relationships. So it's God at the center is what creates unity. Number two, unity is the result of loving, humble service. I told you, what's Jesus just hours from doing? Dying on the cross for our sins. That's loving. God so loved the world that he sent his son. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God, God loves you. How do we know that he loves you? Because Jesus died for you, right? That Jesus died for you. This is love. So love is what you do, not just what you say. Love is primarily what you do. And it's service, it's acts of service. Jesus has come to serve and he is doing so humbly. So the key to unity is for the people, whether it's a relationship, a ministry, a business, a church, a family, loving, humble servants have unity. Jesus is loving, he is humble. He's in the process of going to the cross to serve. That's amazing. Let me just tell you this. I have never seen a massive all out war between the humble and the humble. Never seen it. Never seen like, Wow, these humble people are killing each other. I've never seen that. I have seen the pride and the pride have a head-on collision. The proud and the proud have some problems. The humble and the humble do not. So unity is demonstrated by Jesus as loving, humble service. And then number three, unity is power for a cause or a mission. That's what it's for. That's what it's for. When people pull together, their energies are multiplied. That can be for evil or for good. The reason that Jesus is praying for our unity is because there is power in our unity. And so there is an occasion back in Genesis 11 where people pull together for the cause of unity. They have a shared cause and mission, but it's ungodly. It's at a place called Babel. What they want to do is not worship God and be part of his kingdom. They wanna be gods and set up their own kingdom. So these people literally pull together and their vision is not God's vision. Division is two visions. You have division when you don't share God's vision. They don't share God's vision. The rebellion in heaven comes down to this area of Babel. And what they say is we're gonna set up our own kingdom. We don't need heaven, we'll make it here. We don't need to go up to God. We're gonna make a high tower and we're gonna sit in it, literally looking down on everyone else and we're gonna be like God. God sees this and here's what he says, Genesis eleven six. the Lord said, behold, they are one people, unity. And they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God said, there is a problem. These people are all unified in an ungodly, rebellious way. So what does God do? Confuses their languages and scatters them. That's how we got the nations. That's how we got the nations. The principle here is the power of unity. 
um, literally for the Trinity Church to come into existence, it started with Grace and I, quite frankly, being unified, right? If I'm on one side of the rope pulling this way and my wife is on the other side of the rope pulling that way, all we do is wear one another out. We make no progress, we build nothing. So Grace and I had to come to agreement. What is the Lord's will to plant a church? And then to invite the kids, do you share God's will? Yes, so we need to be aligned and agreed. We need to be unified as a family and then invite others to participate in this vision. Here's the good news. If you look around, Jesus' prayer is answered at the Trinity Church. The people here love each other. They are unified. It's actually going really well. I'm actually really excited, okay? And I'm really encouraged. And when we pull together, look what happens. A church gets planted. Hundreds of people get baptized. People get married. Sins get forgiven. Lives get transformed. It's awesome. When people pull together with God's vision, it multiplies like the fishes and loaves that the little boy gave to Jesus. And a ton of people are blessed and served. And so that is the power of unity. That is his prayer for unity. And let me tell you what's so shocking. Jesus is praying in an upper room that is borrowed. How many guys are present? I told you, how many guys? 11. We're 2000 years later. Jesus' prayer has been answered and we get a chance to answer his prayer. At this point, they have no money. They're broke. Judas had ripped them off. They have no power. They're under the Roman Empire, the most powerful nation on the earth. It's 11 guys. And they have unity around doing the will of God. They're following the leadership of Jesus and they're praying for the opportunities that God would give them. Here's what I would tell you. When you get with your life group this week, up your expectations. If we pray, if we pull together, and if we follow Jesus, 11 people could actually get a lot more done than they might consider, amen? And so here we are today, my friends. We are 2,000 years from Jesus' prayer. Christianity is the biggest movement in the history of the world. More people worship Jesus than anyone in the history of the world. Billions of people today claim to be Christians following in the resurrection wake of Jesus. The Bible is the most translated book in the history of the world. The church exists among more nations than any organization in the history of the planet. No one is as big as Jesus and nothing is as big as Jesus' church. You know why? When people pull together under the will of God, filled with the spirit of God, surrendered and submitted to the word of God and pulled together for the kingdom of God, that gets multiplied and that gets executed in a global way. This is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is just not a guy with a dream. This is a guy with a vision and you're part of it. That's amazing. I'm glad you're both excited. All right, next verse. All right, we glorify God because he is glorious. Everyone lives for the glory of someone or something. You need to know that. Everyone lives for the glory of someone or something. We choose Jesus. John 17, 24, Father, again, he's under authority. He's praying to the Father. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is standing on the earth and he's praying and he says, my friends know me now in humility 
But before I came, before the world was even created, I was in glory. If you really love somebody, you want them to know you, amen? If if you love somebody, you want them to know you. What Jesus is saying is he's been with his disciples for three years and they know him a little bit, but they don't know him fully and truly. So he wants them to know him because it's relational with the glory that he had. So let me explain this to you. Jesus, he says, he exists before the foundations of the world. He's without beginning or end, he's eternal God. He lived in glory. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then he came down in humility. And then he dies and he rises. Where does he return? To glory. So Jesus is in glory. He comes down in humility. He actually then demonstrates greater humility. God goes from heaven to earth, that's humility. And God goes from the earth to the cross. That's the greatest humility. And then God goes to the grave. That's unprecedented humility. And then God conquers the grave and he ascends back into glory. He goes from humility to glory. That's why the Bible says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself and God will raise you up when it's time that so many people wanna be great and they wanna get glory. And the path is the path of humility. Jesus is gonna go to the cross. He's gonna go to the grave. He has the greatest humility. Therefore, he has been honored with the highest glory. So here's the big idea. When you think of Jesus, don't just think of him on the earth. Think of him in heaven. Don't just think of him in humility. Think of him in glory. Don't just think of him as he was 2000 years ago. Think of him as he is today. I wanna tell you the vision that a prophet named Isaiah got of Jesus. It was 700 years before Jesus was walking the earth. And it is the same picture that is of Jesus today. I'll read from you Isaiah 6. And I want you to think of Jesus now. He says, I saw the Lord. Who's the Lord? The Lord Jesus. So Isaiah's on the earth, heaven opens up, the curtain is pulled back and he is transported from the natural into the supernatural. There are two realities. Here we are, there God is. By faith, we believe in this unseen supernatural realm until we see it by sight. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. In that culture, people sat on the floor. They would eat on a table that was basically like our coffee table. They would sit on pillows. As a general rule, people did not sit on chairs, let alone thrones, because that was to be exalted. If you were seated on a throne, that meant that you were exalted. This would be reserved for a judge who was rendering a verdict. This would be reserved for a king who was ruling a kingdom. This would be reserved for a soldier who was being honored with medals for battle. You would be seated. Who's seated on that throne right now in the kingdom of God? Jesus is. 
high and lifted up. Not only is he lifted up on a throne, his throne is lifted up overall because there is no authority comparable to alongside of or over Jesus. His authority is the highest authority in all creation for all eternity. It says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The temple for them was the most sacred place. It was the place of God's presence for God's people. Most of the people who would worship there, like Jesus' family, they came from poor small towns. Their homes were about the size of one of our parking spaces. These are people that do not have much means. And they would go to the temple and they'd be shocked because the temple was high and exalted up on a hill because God is to be high and exalted. And they would go to the temple and it would be the biggest building they've ever seen and the greatest place they've ever been. And it's as big as their minds can conceive. And he says that he sees Jesus and the train of his robe fills the temple. What this is like, this is like a man's jacket and the corner of his jacket is so big, it fills the whole temple. The biggest thing they can conceive of is only large enough to contain what is the hem of the garment of Jesus. Here's the big idea. Jesus is not only bigger than you think, he's bigger than you can think. That's amazing. Whatever your view of Jesus is, you gotta keep lifting the lid. He's bigger and stronger and better than whatever your conception. And as you get closer to Jesus, you realize he is bigger and grander than you could even ask, conceive, or imagine. He's unbelievable. He's unfathomable. The, the limits of the human mind to conceive of the majesty of Jesus means we're always straining to get a bigger view of who he really is. The train of his robe filled the temple above him, stood the seraphim. These are angels. There are various angelic beings that are ministers and messengers who bring messages on behalf of God and minister to people on behalf of God. And their job is to be worshipers. And cherubim and seraphim are two categories of angels. We sing of them in the Christmas song every year. Here the seraphim appear. They have six wings. Two, they covered their face because even a holy angel that is without sin is still overwhelmed by Jesus Christ in glory. In addition, they covered their feet as a sign of deference and humility and respect toward Jesus. And with two, they flew and they called to one another. So the angels are a worship team. The angels are a choir. And they sing and they declare as they surround the presence of Jesus in glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his, what's the word? Glory. When Jesus says, Father, I want them to see the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. That is Isaiah 6. Right now in the presence of Jesus, right now in the presence of Jesus, angels are singing, departed saints are worshiping. When we pray, our prayers go from the natural to the supernatural. When we will sing here in a bit, our songs, our collective prayer will go into the presence of Jesus. We will join the angelic host. We will, we will join that heavenly host. This life is a much bigger deal than you think. And this Jesus is a much bigger deal than you can think. The story continues in Isaiah 6. Isaiah said, woe to me, all right? Here's Isaiah, he's a godly man, he's a prophet. Heaven opens up, he's before Jesus. He's like, oh no, I should not be here. 
Anybody, any of you that are like, I'll be fine, I'll just die and stand before God. A prophet could not stand before God. A guy who writes a book of the Bible, just so you know, is better than you, just so you know. And he stands before Jesus in glory and is like, woe to me, that's accursed, I'm dead, I'm undone. I'm gonna be kindling, this is not gonna go well for me. Woe to me. I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah's like, I am so aware of all of my sin, faults, failures, and flaws, my shortcomings, my rebellions. How many of you, the closer you get to Jesus, the worse you are? Not because you've changed, but because you've gotten reality, right? When you're a brand new Christian, you're like, yeah, I confess my sins, how many? Two. 50 years later, you're like, oh boy, that was just the beginning, you know? The closer I get to Jesus, the more I see where I'm not like Jesus. That's what he sees. Jesus is a mirror that reveals not only the glory of God, but our unglory. Not only do we see how wonderful God is, we see how woeful we are. That is the language of Isaiah. And he says, I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've seen the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus, the ruler over the angels and the demons. Then one of the seraphim, the angels flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. Behold, this has touched you. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. When you behold Jesus in glory, you realize you're a sinner. I have no right to stand in the presence of a holy God. Do you know that holiness is the attribute of God that is mentioned most often in the entire Bible? Isaiah comes into the glorious presence of Jesus. He is consciously aware that much of his sin is with his mouth. Some of you, it's with your wallet. Some of you, it's with your hands. Some of you, it's with your mouth. The angel takes a hot coal, flies over, and what does he do? He touches the place of sin. Here's what you need to do today, friend. Bring your sin to Jesus and let him touch that. Let him touch that. And what he says is, your guilt is taken away. You don't need to feel guilty about that anymore. And your sin is atoned for. That's what the angel says. Atonement is what happens when Jesus goes to the cross and suffers and dies in your place for your sins. Your guilt is removed and your atonement is granted. Some of you come in here today, you have sin in your life. You have folly in your life. You have rebellion in your life. You have secrecy in your life. You have darkness in your life. You have hidden things in your life. You have shameful things in your life. And when you hear of Jesus in glory, the thought is like Isaiah, oh no. And the answer is he'll touch it and he'll forgive it and he'll heal it and he'll make it clean. And his name is Jesus. How do I know this? He says, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. Isaiah reveals it earlier in John's gospel, chapter 12, verse 41. John said, and I quote, Isaiah saw Jesus and spoke of his glory. Glory. 
Isaiah saw Jesus. That's what we learned in John chapter 12. Here's what I want you to know. Right now, this Jesus is alive and well. Right now, this Jesus is high and exalted. Right now, this Jesus is seated on a throne. Right now, this Jesus is being worshiped by angels. Right now, this Jesus is willing to touch your sin, forgive your sin, heal your sin, change your life, alter your destiny, restore your relationship with God and remove your guilt so you can live with gladness. And when you die, you're gonna stand before this Jesus and if you will give him your sin now, all you will have is joy and celebration on that day, amen? That's amazing. That's amazing. Next verse. This is crazy. Jesus prays his longest prayer and he ends it by praying for you and me, that we are his rescue crew. John 17, 25 and 26. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that know you know you have sent me. I made you known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love. What's Jesus' end zone? What's his telos? What's his goal? The glory of God manifested in love. In love. Which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus, verses one through five, prays for himself. Jesus, six through 19, prays for Christians. Jesus, verses 20 through 26, prays for non-Christians, you and I to become Christians. 26 verses he prays, he prays for everyone. And he constantly prays against one thing. What is that? The world, right here. This little word. Jesus prays for everyone, but he prays against something called the world. I shared this with the men on Wednesday night. If you're a man, we'll see you on Wednesday night. We build men up, we don't beat men up. But I shared this with the men. My phone blew up in a good way. And the guys are like, you gotta tell that to the church. So let me share it with you. This is what I shared with the men on Wednesday night. Let me put all of what is happening here in historical context and biblical framework. God, unified, relational, loving, angels, everyone, everything, all together. Satan becomes proud in his heart, declares and decrees a coup attempt, a governance overthrow in heaven. A third of the angels align with him. There is a war in heaven. And it all starts with one being saying, me, it's about me. It's about my glory. It's about my victory. It's about my reputation. It's about me. That's where everything went wrong. Jesus here is praying, no, it's about the Father. It's about the Father. It's about the Father. Those demonic forces were overthrown and cast down. That war that was won by God and the angels in heaven, so there is unity today in the presence of God. That division came, division, pride, rebellion, folly, it came down with Satan and demons. If they didn't come down, it would not come down. When this world was made, God said it was good and very good. Everything has gone bad and very bad. That battle in heaven was then brought to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. 
And Satan shows up and he tempts them to join him in his rebellion. You don't need God, you can become like God. You need not sit under God's headship and authority, you can come under my headship and authority. And our first parents had a decision, will we align with the angels or the demons? And what did they choose? To align with the demons. And we are their children, their sons and daughters. We inherit their rebellious nature. We follow through with rebellious behavior. And then God does something incredible. The father sends his son. The battle that was won up there and lost down here is then followed up with another battle. Jesus comes. Jesus comes into human history. Satan tries to destroy him as a small child through a decree to murder all the firstborn sons. Satan tempts him and harasses him and harms him. We've seen all of this through the gospel of John. All of this is culminating in a great battle at the cross of Jesus. And Jesus here is praying as he is preparing for this great battle at the cross. And what happens at the cross, not only is your sin forgiven, your relationship with God reconciled, the demonic forces that own you then are disarmed. Because through sin and folly and rebellion, you have aligned yourself with that which is satanic and demonic. You have joined Team Judas. And Jesus is going to put you on Team Jesus. So Jesus goes to the cross and he suffers and dies. He substitutes himself in our place for our sins so that your guilt can be assuaged, so that your sin can be atoned for just as happened to the great prophet Isaiah. Jesus here prays 18 times in 26 verses against something called the world. What is the world? It's, it's a Greek word, cosmos, not to get nerdy on you, has seven senses. It doesn't mean races or nations or cultures. God loves all people. It's a system that is a counterfeit, that God is a creator and Satan is a counterfeiter. And God is a king and Satan is a counterfeit king and God creates a kingdom and Satan tries to set up counterfeit kingdoms. And the world is the counterfeit. Culture comes, values come, morality comes, decision-making comes from one of two places, down from heaven or up from hell. Jesus told us to pray and live, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He wants his culture to be your culture. He wants his values to be your values. He wants his morality to be your morality. The world is culture from hell. See, because hell is darkness and heaven is light. Hell is lies and heaven is truth. Hell is misery and heaven is joy. And hell is all about me and heaven is all about him. And when Jesus prays against the world, what he is telling us is that there is this, there is this demonic, satanic way of thinking, valuing, believing. It's like gravity that pulls people down because it seeks to drag them into the depths of hell. That is the world. You and I live on the earth and every day with the decisions we make, the values we hold, we either invite heaven down or we pull hell up. This is why some of you, your life is so painful because you keep pulling hell up into your life. Jesus prays for everyone 
18 times, 26 verses, one prayer, prays against something called the world. What he is warning us is that this is a gravitational force. This is a counterfeit culture. This is demonic division that is intended to ruin and wreck everything and everyone. Your life is a much bigger deal than you think. Your decisions are a much bigger deal than you think. And this Jesus is a much bigger deal than you think. Let me share just a few of the verses with you where Jesus speaks against the world. And here's what I need you to know. We do sex different. We do power different. We do money different. We do relationship different. We do marriage different. We do parenting different. Because we belong to Jesus. Because we belong to the kingdom of God. Because the world in its wisdom does not know God. The world and its desires are passing away. The Bible says, do not be conformed rather, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what Jesus is saying here, it's kingdom versus world. I'm praying that my people would be about the kingdom and not like the world. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. John 17, six, Jesus saves people out of the world. The world is falling apart. The world is passing away. The world is not connected to God. It's in rebellion against God. Your residence is here. Your citizenship is there. God is literally saving you out of the world. That's why God wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. I used the analogy last week. It's like a boat. The boat goes through the water, but the water doesn't go into the boat. The boat goes through the water to rescue people who are drowning. And the goal is to be in this world, but not of this world to get our life, our boat, our church into those waters, but not allow those waters to get into us. Second, Jesus is against the world. Let me just say this. If you are for Jesus, you will be against some things. If you're for the word of God, you will be against some things. Jesus is against the world because the world is demonic. The world is hurting people. The world is lying to people. The world is dooming people. Jesus says, I am not praying for the world, John 17, nine. Again, he prayed for himself, Christians and non-Christians says, but I'm not praying for the world because the world is culture of hell, culture of death, culture of rebellion, culture of folly. We have parades for things that we should have funerals for. Jesus doesn't pray for the world. He prays for the kingdom. God doesn't bless your desires. He blesses his desires. He doesn't bless your values. He blesses his values. God doesn't bless our culture. He blesses his culture. And, and when we pray a prayer to Jesus and say, Jesus, here's what I want. He doesn't deliver that prayer to the Father unless it's according to his will. Jesus, I'm not doing that. I'm not getting involved in that. I'm not asking the Father to participate in that. That's hell up. That's not kingdom down. Next slide. Jesus promises war in the world. How many of you felt this? physically, emotionally, spiritually, politically, financially, just pick a category that has an L-Y at the end. Just pick one. Jesus says, John 17, 11, they are in the world. Here we are. How many of you don't like this world? How many of you 
You're Christians, you read about heaven, you're like, when do we go? Book me a first class ticket, free healthcare, something to eat and sunshine, I'm in, I'm in. The world has hated them, John 17, 14, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Here's the big idea. The world hated Jesus. Don't be shocked if the world hates you. If you're a people pleaser, if you're a man person, you're like, I just want everybody to like me. Well, then you're not gonna be a faithful servant of Jesus. You worship a guy. Let me just let you know a clue. You worship a guy that got murdered. What that means is somebody might not like you. Amen? Now, let's just be honest. Sometimes people don't like us because of the way we are. I fully understand this, okay? I, I fully understand this. Sometimes when people don't like me, it's like, I'm being persecuted because I'm with Jesus. I'm being persecuted because I'm Mark, okay? That's the problem. <laughs> but there are times when you're loving and serving and helping and they are resisting because darkness does not like light because light exposes darkness. And the word is over the world. And the word of God claims to have authority over the world. And so when the word of God comes, there's a conflict between the word and the world. Our job is not to remove the word and to support the world. It is to proclaim the word for the well-being, the blessing, the benefit, the transformation of the world. There will be conflict. And some of you, the reason why family, friends, they're, they're opposed to you, maybe it's your attitude. I fully understand that. But maybe you're just bringing the presence of God and that is a problem. That is a problem. So what do you do? You continue to love and you continue to serve. You respond to hatred with love. You respond to lies with truth. Because what it does is it proves, no, actually, this is our king. This is his kingdom. And if you're going to oppose me, you're just testing me. And it's a great opportunity for me to pass my test and to answer Jesus' prayer that love would come out even when hatred comes forth. Next slide, please. Jesus said, our mission is in this world. John 17, 15 through 19. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, right? You're gonna be here a while. You're supposed to be here. But that you keep them from the evil one. So sometimes we're in the world and we get shaped by its value system and its behavior and its morality. This is how we get hyphenated Christians. They are not of the world. This is not your home. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them. That is make them holy, set them apart. In the truth, your word is truth. Here's the key. You cannot make it through this world without this word. This word will navigate your journey through this world. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. This is the language of a missionary. Missionaries are not just people that are sent across the world. They're sent across the street. They're sent across the apartment complex. They're sent across the cubicle. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. I set myself aside that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here's what I need you to know. God did not bring you here just to golf. Everybody comes here this time of year to what? To golf, I have heaven, perfect, perfect environment. And I'm trying to perfect my game and it's never perfect. You know why? This ain't heaven. You'll have a perfect golf game in heaven. It'll be amazing. There's nothing wrong with golf, but God did not send you here just to golf. 
I went to the Barrett-Jackson auto auction. It's awesome. It's my heaven. It's amazing. I think in heaven, I'm gonna drive all of these. I'll have eternity. I'll get to every one, amen? There's nothing wrong with loving cars. There's nothing wrong with enjoying cars. People come from all around the world to drive the cars, but God did not send you here just to go to car shows. Spring training's coming. I like baseball. I'm all for it. God did not just send you here to watch spring training games. God sent you here because there are people that don't know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, he wants you to tell them who he is and what he's done for them in love. The people fly in from all around the world to Scottsdale, Arizona, looking for heaven, car, heaven, golf, heaven, pool, heaven, grill, heaven, spring training, heaven. Let me tell you what, we got good news to tell. There's a real heaven. And Jesus is better than golf. And Jesus is better than your car. And Jesus is better than your grill. And Jesus is better than your pool. And Jesus is better than your spring training team. Amen? And so everybody who's coming here looking for a kingdom, they're not gonna find it. But if we tell them about Jesus and his great, glorious, and grand kingdom, they will actually meet the king. And they'll be citizens of the kingdom. And here's what I need you to know. Everybody comes here for a vacation or retirement lifestyle, not us. We're sent by Jesus. That's why we're here. Feel free to go, feel free to grill, jump in the pool, root for your spring training team, but don't lose your mission and message. You're here to expand and extend the kingdom of God. When his building is on fire, we call the firefighters and we send them in. When somebody is held hostage, we call the cops, we send them in. When a nation is overtaken by a cruel tyrant and dictator, we call the soldiers and we send them in. Good news, you are the fire department, you are the police department, you are the foot soldiers for the kingdom of God and the king whose name is Jesus Christ. We have something better, more glorious, good and grand to proclaim and something more awesome and amazing to ponder. And what we're gonna do right now, we're gonna worship, amen. I'm gonna bring the band up. I've been excited all day. I hope you would join me in the worship of Jesus. Where is Jesus right now? He is seated on a throne high and exalted. The angels are crying out. The departed saints are crying out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth, the supernatural and the natural realm, filled with his glory. I'm gonna invite you to stand right now. I'm gonna pray for you. And as we sing, we are connecting those two realities. We are inviting that king and his kingdom culture to be present among us and then to bring that presence of our king and his kingdom with us as we go to work and school and life this week. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, you prayed for our unity. We seek by the grace that you give to answer your own prayer and to love one another with a supernatural love. Lord God, this world is in trouble. And the good news is there is a savior. Jesus, not only did you pray, you died. Not only did you die, you rose. Not only did you rise, you returned to your throne. Not only do you sit on your throne, there's one more day coming. Jesus, when you will get off that throne, and you're gonna come down for one last final battle. You're gonna defeat Satan and demons. You are gonna raise the dead. You are gonna restore eternity for all of your people. Lord Jesus, you're gonna take that worldly culture that you kicked out of heaven. 
You're gonna kick it off the planet. You're gonna kick it down to hell. You're gonna make a new heaven and a new earth and we're gonna have new bodies and new relationships and new eternity. And Jesus, we believe it today by faith until we see it one day by sight. And I thank you for the people you're gonna save. I thank you for the people you're gonna heal. I thank you for the lives that you're gonna change. I thank you for the legacies you're gonna alter. And I thank you that we get to be a part of it in your good name. Amen. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.